James chapter number five is where we are for a few minutes this morning. This is our 20th message in our letter to James, and it will be the final one in this particular series. And it's been a wonderful series. Um, Say this together with me. James is great, but James is hard. And it sure is. Uh, If you hadn't been challenged in this in-depth study, the letter of James, I don't know where you've been because I've been incredibly challenged. We love James because it's such a wonderfully practical book, but James just kind of hits us right between the eyes. It is a book of imperatives. James is quick to tell us what to do as the people of God, and that's the reason many people like it, because James is just so direct and and so clean cut, so to speak, and he tells us as it is, and we've seen that in many different kinds of ways. We're going to look today at what we might call a final charge to the church, from the church's pastor. Remember, this church is scattered all over the Mediterranean basin because of persecution. It was originally one church meeting in Jerusalem, and the persecution that had erupted because of the stoning and death of Stephen changed all of that, and the church ended up scattering as a result of that persecution. This letter is an attempt by their presiding elder, a man named James, to keep them all on the same page, and he focuses on many things that has happened in the church, many reports that he's heard from the church. And as he gives us something of a final charge, which is not uncommon at all in many of the New Testament letters and even in the gospel itself, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the gospel of Matthew is a final charge to the church. Paul often does it in his letters and certainly James does that here. And his final charge focuses on two things. One is the ministry of intercession, and the other is a ministry of intervention, going after those who have wandered from the faith. This is clear from our text, and so let's take a look at what he says beginning in verse 13. Let's stand together, those of you that are able, as we honor the reading of God's wonderful word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's bow before the Lord as we pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, first of all, we're grateful to be here We thank you for the wonderful 
joy that comes with the gathering of the people of God, the assembling of ourselves together in the name of Christ for the purpose of worshiping and adoring and celebrating and praising who he is and everything that he has done for us. And I pray this morning, Father, now as we have open Bibles before us in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, that you would make the book real to us. Help us to hear from the book of God as the people of God, that we might do the works of God until Christ comes again. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. Y'all can be seated. Let me just say this morning for all the ADD, OCD people in the room today that my original intention was to cover both components of this final charge to the church, the ministry of intercession and the ministry of intervention. As I prepared through the weekend, time is not going to allow us to cover both. It's just too much stuff to cover. I want to give ample time at the end of our service today to pray. I want us to be able to practice a little bit about what we preach today. And there's some people in the room today that need prayer. And at the end of our service today, at the end of our sermon, actually, I'm going to have the pastors of our church come. And they're going to be standing all across the front. And if you're here this morning and you have a prayer need, one of our pastors will be here to pray with you and to pray for you. And so we want to give ample time to that. But I'm not going to be covering what is noted as point two in your notes So do whatever you have to do down to settle down, take a pill, whatever you need to do. We'll come back another day. This was printed long before I had finished the message, but we'll come back and deal with the last statement at some point in the future. Today, I simply want to look at that first point, this ministry of intercession, in which a part of James's final charge to the church is simply this, you as the people of God, should be faithfully praying for those who are hurting. Faithfully pray for the hurting. This is a very famous passage of scripture. It's been dealt with every which way from Sunday and many of you've read it and studied it. It's not altogether perfectly clear to be honest with you. In fact, there's quite a bit in here. I'm not even gonna be able to touch on every phrase or parse every word that James mentions in here. This is one of those passages of scripture that I could preach about a four-part sermon series right out of. And one of these days, I'm still a young man. Somebody say amen. (laughs) We'll return to James 5 when you've long forgotten this particular series, and we'll dig even deeper into this final couple of paragraphs. But the critical matter here as we read this, I think it's important to understand that the critical matter is not anointing with oil. In fact, the critical matter is not even healing. The critical matter that James is charging to the church is in a word, prayer. He says very simply, I think the crux of the matter is in verse 16, when he says very simply to the church, pray for one another. Now, you don't need to be a preacher uh, for somebody to tell you that prayer is all over the pages of the New Testament. Almost all of the letters in the New Testament, regardless of who wrote them, have a prayer for the church in some way, and almost all of them have a request for prayer or a call to prayer. Many of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ had to do with teaching his disciples how to pray. The Bible teaches us in a very familiar passage of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, that we are to pray how? Without what? 
ceasing. In other words, we're to be a people whose lives are marked by constant, continual prayer. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the English language, said one time, there's not 15 minutes of my adult life that has not been spent in conscious communion with God. That's a radically amazing statement. He was a man who constantly had his mind and heart focused on the living God. Much of that through what we would call pray, a prayer. And all of that underscores the point that for a disciple, following Jesus means learning how to pray. If you're not learning how to pray and if you're not praying, I'm not sure that you can say you're following Jesus very closely at all. Now, there's more packed in this passage than we possibly have time to cover this morning, but basically, I see James as a very typical preacher here, which he was, communicating five things that his congregation and us by extension need to do with the discipline of prayer. I'm gonna give you those five this morning and we're gonna chew on them in the time that we have remaining. First of all, he tells us that we need to pray for those who are in distress. Is any of you in trouble, he says? Is any among you suffering? And we might ask the question to the room today. Is there anybody in the room today suffering in some way. The word that's used here that's translated suffering carries the idea of just difficulty, adversity. It can be a physical adversity. It can be a mental or emotional struggle of some kind. And with that in mind, I think it's important to ask the question again, is any among you struggling, in trouble, going through hardship or difficult times? This is a word that has very broad application. It could refer to persecution. You might be struggling because you're a believer. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world know more about that than we do. But certainly you can be an American and be persecuted for your faith in some way, shape, or form. Some are. Uh, are you in trouble as a result of grief that comes as a result of personal loss? Has someone close to you died, leaving behind a void? Are you struggling and are you in angst, maybe even in anger because of that? Is any among you struggling because of economic hardship? Maybe you've lost your job or maybe you're between jobs or maybe times are tight economically. All of us are feeling the pinch of inflation and we're feeling the pinch of wage stagnation. And so it's tighter now than it's ever been really in my adult lifetime. Prices are going up. Many of us struggle and some people that hurts more than others. And then for others, there may be relational struggles. Times might be tough at home, or times might be tough with a friend, whatever the case might be. James doesn't specifically tell us how we may be struggling, but he's very clear on what. Those of you that face hardship or trouble, whatever it may be, the solution is to pray. Pray for those who are in distress. And then secondly, James says to pray for those with disease. This is a more specific kind of adversity that James singles out after having mentioned the broad-based application of struggling. He gets very specific. He fires with a rifle. Is any among you sick? This is something that some of us may be dealing with even now. There are people in the room that are sick. You don't have the sniffles and nobody would know it by talking to you, but you know it and the doctors know it. 
Is any among you sick? And if we're not sick, just mark it down. You're going to be one of these days. In fact, that old COVID-19 made just about all of us sick at one time or another in more ways than one. Somebody say amen. We're sick to death of it, literally and metaphorically. Is any among you sick? Verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word translated sick there is a word that means to be weak, to be without strength. I remember the old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. There's a line in it that says, Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? We should never be discouraged. Why not take it to the Lord? How? In prayer. That's right. And so this is definitely a reference to some kind of physical illness. And based on the way James uses it, he's not talking about any sickness. We're not talking about a case of the sniffles here. We're not talking about athlete's foot here. We're not talking about uh, a bad rash. James is talking about a serious physical illness. Think along the lines of Lazarus, who was sick unto death. Think along the lines of Epaphroditus, who Paul mentions in his letter to the Philippians, who was face to face with death. This is a serious sickness. And James says in the next verse, this is the kind of illness in which the Lord raises a person up, which is hard to kind of apply that to a runny nose. Amen. Uh, not to say you shouldn't pray for a runny nose, all right? Don't write me any emails. So if you're sick, you should take it to the Lord in prayer. In fact, in any and all of these situations, particularly the serious situations, James says three things are to be done. Uh, it's always the initiative of the sick person. James is telling, if you are sick, if you are sick, here's what you are to do. The first thing he says is what? Call for the elders of the church. And James certainly would have been one of those himself. These elders are church leaders. The word elder, bishop, or overseer, or pastor are synonyms for one another throughout the New Testament. So a Elder is a pastor, an elder is a bishop, a pastor is an elder, and a pastor is a bishop, and a bishop is an elder, and a bishop is a pastor. These fundamentally are people, at least in our tradition, that we would call pastors. And so James says, call for the pastor elders of the church, those who have the responsibility of leading the church in the teaching ministry of the church and pastoral leadership, those who have oversight over a congregation. The second thing that he says here after calling the elders is that the elders are to do something, namely the elders are to pray over the sick person. And we don't know exactly what that means. This may be a reference to a person who's bedfast, like Lazarus was, and probably Epaphroditus. This idea of an elder praying over someone kind of gives the illusion at least that the person is some kind of, in some kind of a prone uh, position. Or it could just simply mean praying over a person symbolically. We may be doing some of that at the end of the service today by simply laying our hands on a person and praying for them. By doing that, we can both be standing up, but I as a pastor can still be praying over you. And so the position really doesn't have as much to do with it. What's important is not the posture of the person here. What's important is the praying of the person here. And in these particular kinds of cases, it's the pastor elder 
That's the one who's doing it. And then third, the elders are to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now you see this done throughout the New Testament. In fact, you see anointing with oil really done all over the Bible. But this is done particularly in the New Testament. It's what the 12 disciples did during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Mark 6, 13, they anointed with oil many who were sick and what? And healed them, that's right. Now here's the thing. Neither James nor Mark gives us any details about what that anointing meant or why in the world they were charged to do it. We simply know that they did do it, right? And given that olive oil was a, uh, a commodity that was used in all kinds of ways, it was also used uh, medicinally. Luke, of course, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, was by training a doctor. He was a medical doctor. And I don't know what Luke carried around in that leather satchel of his, but I guarantee you one thing that he had in there was olive oil because they slathered that up and down a person, man, and uh, treated all kinds of different kinds of illnesses with the application of olive oil. And there's some even today that suggests that when James is instructing these elders to anoint a person with oil, he's doing it in a way that implies a medicinal remedy. In other words, some say that this is a command of James to have the person seek medical treatment if indeed they are sick. Now let me just say this morning, I as a pastor am a pastor that believes in the discipline of medicine, amen. If you're sick, the first thing I'm gonna tell you is to go see a doctor. Seeking medical treatment when you're unwell particularly when the malady is a serious one, is an appropriate and right and wise thing to do. You may not like going to the doctor. Your blood pressure, like mine, always goes up when you go to the doctor. They think I'm about to die. I've often told my wife, the most unhealthy I ever am in my life is when I'm in a doctor's office. <laughs> I'm gonna be one of those guys that drops dead in the parking lot of Sacred Heart. I just get worked up. My brother was a Marine, passes out cold at the sight of a needle. I blame it on genetics. I don't know. But you should go to the doctor. And even though I don't like going to the doctor, I do go to the doctor. But I don't think you ought to go to the doctor before you go to the Lord Jesus Christ, even when you have a case of the sniffles. Take it to the Lord in prayer and then go to the doctor. Having said all of that, I don't think that James is using the anointing with all in a medical sense because it would be odd for James to tell pastors to do that if it was a medicinal remedy. It seems to me like he'd say, call a doctor and have him anoint the person with oil. And let me just say, if I as an elder am called to your house to come and anoint you, it surely will not be with an antibiotic or with a narcotic, I can tell you that. That's outside my lane. You need to consult a doctor for that kind of stuff. But I will anoint you with oil. And I will do it in the name of the Lord. And here's the thing. I won't do it sacramentally, as our Roman Catholic friends tend to believe, that there's grace somehow in the oil. No, I'll anoint you and we'll anoint some people even this morning that want it. But I'm going to do it symbolically. I'm going to do it in a way that symbolizes that through this prayer, we are setting you as a person apart unto God for God to work with you in a special kind of way regarding this very serious thing to you. 
and to your life. That's how anointing with oil was generally used in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. It symbolized the setting apart of a person for sacred usefulness to God. Sometimes even inanimate objects, even things were anointed with oil, like the utensils used in the most holy place. They would have been anointed with oil, consecrated, set apart for God's special use and for God's special service. So elders are to be called, or an elder is to be called, and they're to anoint the person with oil. And they do that as a means of consecrating the person, of setting the person apart unto God for God's special attention. And then thirdly, their elders are to be called, the elders are to anoint with all. And then what's the third thing? The elders, of course, are to what? To pray, that's right, which is the most important part of all of it. But the question is, how specifically are they to pray? James does not tell us a bit about that. He doesn't tell us how they're to pray, doesn't tell, them, tell us what they're supposed to pray for. And as you could imagine, this has opened this up to all kinds of interpretations, every which way but Sunday, as I said before. There's no detail about the specific wording, no detail about the specific nature of the praying. He just says pray. There is one qualification that he does say, and that takes us to the third aspect of prayer here, this third part of this charge of intercession to the church. And that is what he does say about the prayer is that it is to be offered with what? Pray with what? Faith. That's right. Very good. He says in verse 16, and the prayer of what? Say it out loud. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, again, the emphasis here is on the praying, right? You don't need olive oil for God to do a work of healing. Everybody understands that. There are lots of healing in the Bible where there wasn't a vial of oil within 30 miles, all right? So you don't have to have the oil in order for God to work or for God to heal. In fact, let me just say this. You don't even have to have an elder. I mean, it's a good thing if you can call on one, but God's not gonna look at you in the midst of praying and say, well, you know what? There's not, a, there's, there's not an official of the church there present. You need a church officer for me to work. Call me back when you've met the right criteria. Now, if you've got one, that's a very helpful thing, but that's not even necessary. What James says is necessary is prayer. And it's interesting that he says here in verse 16 that we should pray for one another. And so the primary emphasis is not just elders praying, although that's a good thing to do in the most extreme kinds of cases. But what's at the heart of this passage is God's people praying for one another. Pray for one another. That's what matters when God's people pray. And when God's people pray, they need to pray with faith. When God's people pray, they need to be believing in a sovereign, all-powerful God. Again, this reminds us of what James says in chapter one. James actually has a lot to say about prayer throughout this letter, and you remember one of the most famous things he said was, you have not because you what? Ask not. So it's probably a good thing to start asking God in your times of need. But he reminds us in chapter one, verse six, that when you pray, you need to what? Ask in what? Faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And the Bible says, in Mark 11, along those same lines, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, let me just qualify that statement right there because that's not a blank check. Some will, in Christian circles, will preach it as if it's a blank check. It's not a blank check. Say this with me. It's not a blank check. It's not a blank check. Because one thing we never do is presume upon God. We never presume to know the totality of God's will when we pray, because you don't. Uh, We never dictate to God. Listen, the created never dictate to the creator. Somebody say amen. You don't try to manipulate God. God is not your cosmic bellhop in heaven. He's not a divine Santa Claus. God is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And that's a good point. God's the sovereign one, not me. And because I'm not sovereign, uh, I, I don't get to dictate to God. God's the sovereign one, not me. God's the omniscient one. God's the only one that knows his full and complete plan for my life, for your life. He's the omniscient one, not me. And so that brings us to one of the most important tensions in the Bible. The Bible's full of tensions, and sometimes you have to learn to live with the tension. And one of the great tensions in the Bible is this tension between praying specifically and praying humbly. Praying very specifically, asking God specifically what you want him to do. And that's a very biblical thing. Jesus looked at the blind man who's calling over and over again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you remember the eternal question Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see very specific requests. And so the Bible teaches we should do that. At the same time, our praying should not only be specific, it should be humble. In other words, we should pray for God's will. That's the way Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, let this cup pass from me very specifically. And yet he prayed humbly. Nevertheless, what's the rest of the verse? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And you remember Jesus took him to the cross. Even though Jesus prayed for another route, he yielded to the omniscience and the perfect plan of God. And that's what it means to pray in faith. See, the Bible says, frankly, we should do both. We should pray specifically and we should pray humbly. We should pray for the best and yet we should pray for God's very best most of all. That's what praying with faith ultimately is. It's not praying for your best, it's praying for God's best. And that means having a heart that's humble enough that's willing to leave room for God to work in ways that are according to his sovereign plan and purpose in ways that are just right according to his will. And here's the thing, sometimes it may not be your will, but God has a better plan in mind. Again, I've said this a hundred times. When I think of all the stupid things I've asked God for doing my, to do in my life, and I look back on some of that stuff, you know what I say? Thank you, God that you didn't listen to the silliness of that prayer. Oh, he listened, but he was sovereignly at work. And basically, he just said to me, as he has to you many times, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) right? See, this kind of praying, James says, will save the sick. 
the kind of praying that's offered in faith in the full and complete sovereignty and omniscience of God. It will save the sick, not in a, a biblical sense, save them, as we talk about people being saved. In other words, me as an elder praying over somebody is not going to lead them to eternal life. Might result in that, but that's something that they have to work out with God. No, James is using the word save here in the sense of deliverance. The prayer of faith will deliver the sick and God will raise them up. And here's the thing. Sometimes that might be a miraculous physical restoration. Sometimes it won't. Paul prayed for God to remove his thorn in the flesh, not once, not twice, but three times. And all three times, God, the greatest missionary preacher since Jesus Christ, the super apostle, all three times, God said, no, 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 my grace is sufficient for you. I've got a greater plan and purpose by leaving that thorn in place. Paul, the Bible says, left or told Timothy that he left Trophimus behind sick in Miletus. He'd intended to travel to meet up with Timothy, bringing his associate Milet, or, uh, Trophimus in tow, but he was too unwell to travel. No miraculous healing. Paul says, I left him behind because he was really sick. Other times, God will simply heal the person by calling that person unto himself forever. And let me make it very clear. For a believer, that's God healing the person in the greatest kind of way. Sometimes what we refer to as the ultimate healing. I was called to a hospital several months ago to pray over one of our members here at Hillcrest who was very sick. And I gathered in the room there with his family. Man, I was gloved up, gowned up, double mask, hood on my head. I looked like some out of a science fiction movie. And we went in, he was breathing. We talked with the family and visited for 10 or 15 minutes. And I called the family together and I said, let's come over here and let's just pray together. We began to pray over that person and I prayed for God to heal that person. I prayed specifically and I prayed humbly. And when I put the closing amen on that prayer and I opened my eyes and the family opened their eyes, that precious saint of God that was a part of our church had gone on to be with the Lord. He died while I was praying the prayer over him. And I've got something to communicate to my church this morning. God answered this elder's prayer. He took that precious saint to be home with him and he healed him forever and restored him to full vitality in the very presence of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything, say it out loud together, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So live with attention. Pray specifically, but pray humbly. Recognize the sovereignty of God and leave room for God to work whenever you pray. And then James very quickly teaches us in verse 16 to pray with integrity. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's a very familiar verse. I could preach a whole sermon just on that one verse right there. 
It's a hard sentence to translate, but basically the idea is this. Here's the way I would translate it from the Greek. The energetic prayer of a righteous person is powerfully effective. That's what James is communicating. The energetic prayer of a righteous person is powerfully effective. I mean, I could, that's a, that's a three-point sermon right there on each of those words. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the energetic part of praying here in just a second as we conclude, but the verse revolves around the word righteousness. Righteous one. The energetic prayer of a righteous person. Now, in one sense, that's all of us who know Jesus Christ because we're positionally righteous in the presence of God because of salvation. If you weren't a righteous person by salvation, your prayers would have no effect because God wouldn't hear them. But the fact of the matter is, you are a righteous person. And so in one sense, this communicates that any and every born-again believer can approach God in prayer. Amen. But there's also an issue of practical righteousness in which the power of the prayer is largely predicated upon the cleanness of the one doing the praying. The integrity of the one doing the praying. In other words, when we pray, we need to pray with what the Bible says is clean hands and pure hearts. Y'all not have any unconfessed. In fact, the Bible says if you have unconfessed sin in your life, it'll have a halting effect on your prayers. Psalm 66 verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have what? Say it out loud. See, sin will hinder your prayers. And this is why James says the energetic prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman is powerfully effective. Peter will remind husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3, husbands, if you fail to honor your wife, if you abuse your wife in any way, shape, or form, it will what? Hinder your prayers. So how you live matters in terms of the effectiveness of your prayer life. They need to be offered from a position of spiritual and moral integrity. And then finally, and as promised, James reminds us to pray with intensity. Pray with intensity. The prayers that bring powerful results are prayers that are prayed powerfully. That's a tongue twister, but it's true. The word we often use here is fervent prayer, energetic prayer. Do I need to remind anybody this morning that prayer is work? Which is why most people are weak at it. Prayer is an unnatural activity. It's 100% spiritual, but it involves incredible physical and emotional exertion. It's hard work. It requires significant effort. It requires Adequate time. And that's why so many of us have room to improve in our prayer lives. And I include myself in that incredibly important statement. Sometimes we can't or just won't designate, it, uh, designate the appropriate time we need to pray. James points to Elijah as an example here. Elijah was maybe the most respected of all the biblical prophets. He's mentioned in the New Testament more than any other prophet. The Jewish people loved Elijah, and it's easy to understand why. But James is very quick to remind us of something about Elijah, as tight as he was with God, that he was not a superhero. He didn't have the big letter S on his chest. 
He was not a super saint. James goes out of his way to say Elijah was a man, what? Say it out loud. A man just like ours, with a nature just like ours. In other words, here's the thing. Everybody who knows God can pray to God. And you can pray to God in an effective kind of way that brings incredible results, even concerning very significant matters. Elijah's not, listen, Elijah's not, in this example, he's not praying for God to bless his food. He's not praying God is great, God is good here. He's not praying for God to give him a good day today. He's praying for God to change the weather. And it worked. He prayed for drought and it did not rain. Then he prayed for rain and God sent a deluge. What's important is not the specific example. What's important is the intensity and the righteousness of the man praying. Elijah prayed fervently in the will of God, which was something that he was accustomed in doing. There are other examples about Elijah's life. You remember the story on Carmel when Elijah, one prophet of Israel, faced down 450 prophets of Baal. He prayed to God. God sent down fire from heaven. Elijah was called to pray over a widow's son who had died, the widow of Zarephath. And three times he cried to the Lord as he stretched out his own body over the boy's lifeless corpse. And the boy of the Lord heard, and the boy was raised unto life. Remember, this was a man, James is quick to say, was just like us. A man who spoke to God frequently, but most importantly, fervently. And God answered his prayers. Well, have you got it this morning? Are you with me so far? Say amen. James's final charge to the church is fundamentally a call to pray. God's people are to pray for one another, pray for those in distress, pray for those with disease, pray with faith, pray with integrity, pray with intensity. And to that, I might add, pray with confidence because of the absolute promise of the word of God, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or a woman accomplishes great things in the power of God. The question is, will we pray for one another?